0: RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers.
1: Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight an honor the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. For Alison Brooks, architecture is not about style. It's far more about the setting in which a building will live. Like so many great designers I have met during the course of this series, Alison Brooks has a disarming modesty about her talent and achievements. She is the only architect to have won all three of the UK's most prestigious architectural awards, the RIBA Sterling Prize, the Mansa Medal and the Stephen Lawrence Prize, and far too many additional ones to mention here. Her professional life started when she left her native Canada in 1987, alone with a suitcase, portfolio and a hope, she arrived in the UK during an economic downturn when many architects were downsizing or closing. But with relentless determination, she secured a job with designer Ron Arad. She assisted him for seven years, after which she was ready to set up her own practice. With a single project, a spare bedroom as a studio and a young baby to tend, she started. But she charmingly recalled that actually her first project was at the age of 12, when she systematically measured every room, nook and cranny, in the rambling home that she had shared with her mother and two sisters, and was about to move from. It was a touching memento and memory of a much-loved home. All this and more in this delightful conversation that took place in Alison's busy practice in North London. I asked her if she felt she had a recognisable style.
0: I think it's really hard to give labels and categories to a lot of contemporary work, whether it's in architecture, design, or graphic design. I think... For me, what's most interesting is to try to not repeat myself and not actually fall back on old or easy ways of doing things. And, you know, that idea of a sort of house style, it's kind of double-edged sword because on one way, you know, on the one hand you want to be recognizable, but on the other hand you don't want to sort of have a formula that you impose and spread all over the place. So I I tend to think that the way I work and a lot of the work that I've done has been sort of recognised, been experimental, they've been exploratory, and they often experiment with geometry and form and have a kind of purism (laughs) to them that actually makes them quite distinctive.
1: Well, perhaps a little later we'll talk about some specific (laughs) buildings, but I want to first of all really roll back to you were you were born into Canada
0: well I was actually born in Welland Ontario Canada, which is a very small town and I lived in Welland for 12 years and then Guelph for five years and then Waterloo for my architectural education and then Toronto
1: okay well let's go back to the beginning there tell me a little bit about your childhood what sort of family did you come from
0: well, I grew up in a, pose a, a typical nuclear family of the 1950s and 60s. I had two sisters, two older sisters, so I'm the youngest of three. My father was a lawyer and my mother was sort of at home mother who was really deeply interested in the art like music arts architecture but as an observer as a sort of appreciator of art rather than a producer of art and uh, my parents split up when I was eight so I had a very early taste of having to be kind of self-sufficient independent my mother my two sisters and I and I suppose because my sisters were older and I was the youngest one, maybe my mother sort of spent a bit more time with me, sort of involving me in her interests and obsessions, I suppose. And she actually used to take me around southern Ontario or Toronto. She always made an effort to show me places that she thought were really interesting or beautiful or amazing buildings, Ontario sort of old Ontario barns for example Uh the way they sit in the landscape you know these really big solemn pure forms and the way they kind of rest in their landscape and they're so kind of simple and beautiful and she she didn't used to say any of those things she would just say look at that barn over there and you know doesn't it sit beautifully in the landscape or show me Victorian farmhouses that have beautiful timber plantation and gingerbread and brickwork or neo-gothic buildings and you University of Toronto campus. Also, you know, some really modern places like Ontario Place or Expo. But but really, I think she had an eye for architectural quality and beauty and craftsmanship. And she wanted me to appreciate all that. So
1: she was a source, really?
0: She sort of opened my eyes to the importance and the, the kind of pleasure that anybody could get from... So this is pre- when you are young? From eight till I was... I, I guess a teenager, like 13 or something, when kids just kind of do what their sure. parents yeah, ask them I, to no, do. Sure, well, and often you rebel around, against it. <laughs> you go around together, and, you know, when they take the time to point things out, it actually is meaningful.
1: So did you then start to develop a sort of more of a visual creative interest? Did you draw? Did you... I mean, how did that develop when you were quite young?
0: It was... I don't know, maybe it was a kind of latent... Interest or skill that I had that didn't really come out or emerge, or just the education system I grew up in was very conventional and Ontario state school system that everybody attends. I think I also was ingrained with the idea that it was not good to specialize and it was very good to be a sort of generalist, yeah. you know, the yeah, sort yeah. of Renaissance person mm-hmm. who polymath, somebody who appreciates the arts also does sports does music the sciences you know to have a very broad understanding of the world and the way it works and and so i always kind of shied away from specializing at anything mm-hmm. i did a lot of sports i also did music and and um, I loved reading. And so when I was about 16, I took a course in architectural design and drafting at my high school. That was quite unusual for high schools to offer in, in um, Canada. And and I just... I, that was from the a moment, conscious... Yes, I did. I, that was a conscious decision. I can't remember really why that happened. But I do also remember when I moved from Welland to Guelph when I was 13... The house I grew up in was a kind of wonderful, big old house that had started out as a sort of 19th century, sort of double-fronted house, and had been expanded in the 1960s. And it was quite big, and it had a huge basement, a huge attic, and back stairs, and lots of built-in furniture. It it was kind of this giant, three-dimensional playground and my sisters and I had really loved um, growing up in this house, and I took it upon myself to measure every room in the house <laughs> and and do plans of the whole house really? to take with me as a kind of memento of right. this house that I grew up in. So I think that was actually my first <laughs> yep, yep. true architectural act was um, when I was... 12 or 13, oh, wow. drawing up measured plants of my house. So I suppose there, there was a kind of seed there yes. where I, I really felt that, or I could see just sort of comparing, in a way, the kind of house I grew up in compared to the ones that my friends grew up in, mm-hmm. that, that ours just had so much more to it to sort of explore, you know, different kinds of rooms, sort of like secret passages, and it, it was a really really interesting place when I was very young and you know my family was sort of fractured and I sort of saw what happens when you're not self-sufficient and independent because my mother had been dependent on my father obviously as a 60s housewife I was kind of determined to never never find myself in a position of dependency with my partner and I knew that having a profession such as architecture or medicine or um, many others, you take that with you. It's always with you. Yeah. Nobody can ever take it away sure. from you. you. And you can probably survive.
1: So you, um, you went later to the University of Waterloo. Yes. And is yeah. that where you studied? Yes, that's where I studied architecture. And yeah. that was for a how long? Is it that the was same in Canada nearly seven here. Years, So it's so yes. a very long time. it's um, an extraordinarily long. I mean it's yeah. as long as a doctor, isn't it, really?
0: Yes. Well it's a it's a little bit longer than a typical architectural degree because Waterloo is it's called a co op system where after the first year every other semester you work in a practice. So it's yeah, I'm interning I mean, you're yeah. paid, so you, it yeah, yeah. helps you pay your way through sure. school. But the, the m- most important aspect of it is giving students, whether they're in engineering or computer science or architecture or arts programs, employment, practical experience. So by the time you graduate, you have nearly three years of, yes. of work of experience. Work. And so you're very employable and very... Um, skilled up when you when you graduate.
1: So when you finally graduated, you you had a job to, to go to because of this?
0: Well, I wasn't really... Because I'd worked in six or seven mm. even mm. Uh, practices around Ontario and I'd worked in very good practice in Toronto, but the, in one of the best ones in Canada, which was Jack Diamond and Donald Schmidt, for a year and a half before my final thesis year, I kind of felt that I'd pretty much... Seen the whole scene of um, the profession in, at least in Ontario and in Toronto. I'd had a a kind of the full spread of experiences in practice, and I felt I wanted to just leave Canada and find go to a new city in a new place and find my way on my own and, and so did I that left. bring you here yes and that, so i um how left. long ago was that That was december 1987 1987
1: yeah so when you arrived here did you have anything in mind did you have anyone to go i, to? I
0: had a list yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had a list of architects that i was i was going to apply to work with so peter cook Yes. Obviously. Yes. Archogram fame of and course. everything since. The AA. I mean, University of Waterloo really did look to the AA and we were very conscious of, you know, the publications mm. and the tutors and the thinkers that come out of the AA. So I think a lot of my targets on my list were either AA Excellent. tutors yes. or also Matthias Sauerbrook. I knew he'd been the project architect for Checkpoint Charlie mm-hmm. in Berlin, mm-hmm. while he worked for OMA, and I couldn't work in the Netherlands. You know, as a Canadian, you can't get a job in mm-hmm. Europe. You, mm-hmm. you have to have visas. So, Matthias Sauerbrook was on my list, Will also Peter mm-hmm. Wilson, Wallace Wilson, and the architects who used to work for Camden Council doing a lot of the amazing housing. So, who did Come you
1: actually me. end up with?
0: Well, the, the thing is that I... I didn't end up with any of them because they were all closing down and of moving course, out that was of bit, London. In fact, that period <laughs> that was,
1: was a very bad time
0: for Yeah. Architects. Oh, it was Benson and Forsyth right. were the architects, okay. the sort of great housing architects. Yes. Um, it was a very bad time. It was time. a really flat
1: time, I remember, <laughs> because um, at that time, in 1986, just prior to 87, you, you could virtually go to any architect in London At the time, my own company, we bought a property in um, Bloomsbury and we had David Chipperfield design it for us because there was no work. And my partner had his house extension built by Will Orsop. It was astonishing.
0: It was quite a bad time, actually, to come over. So I came over with my portfolio, Mm -hmm. my sort of drawing Mm -hmm. suitcase, my um, case of drawing equipment, and I think I had £500. I had a thousand dollars, so I had to get a job. To stay? Pretty um, well, I stayed with friends for a couple of weeks till I found a mm-hmm. a room in a yeah. sort of a bed set. And I was very lucky because, well, everybody was very friendly, mostly everybody. <laughs> I mean, Peter Cook had me in for tea and gave me a bunch of his books and pamphlets and was really welcoming, but he didn't have any work. And Peter Wilson had me in and gave me tea, and he sort of showed me around the office that he was packing up, there were literally movers there, packing everything into into a moving van, and I went to Matthias Sauerbrook and Louisa Hutton's office, which was in their home in Notting Hill and they, the place was filled with tea crates <laughs> that were being filled yeah. with they were moving to Germany he had me in and, he, and as we were having tea, he said, well he'd heard that Ron Arad was doing a competition for the Tel Aviv it. Opera, I don't know if he told me it was for the Tel Aviv Opera, but he said he heard he's doing a competition and maybe he needs some help So why don't you go try, you know, the one-off shop in Covent Garden. And I, of course, didn't know anything about about Ron Herod or one-off or anything, but I thought, well why not it's a it's a lead and you have to take every opportunity you get and so off I went to to Shelton Street in Covent Garden and was interviewed by Ron and Christina Norton and Steve McAdam because they'd sort of teamed up to do the competition and I got a six-week contract to work on right. the competition and so I started doing that for me it was really so far outside of any architect sort of typical experience to be working, first of all, at the back of a furniture shop in Covent Garden that was more or less pitch black and all of the the walls were made of welded steel with you know handmade furniture and sculpt, exactly. and then these kind of temporary <laughs> desks set up at the back of the showroom and and so for me it was really really refreshing to mm. be just in an environment that was completely outside any kind of norm in terms of the setup in terms of a sort of professional context mm. in which architects produce design you know this was the opposite end of the spectrum
1: and did that change your thinking I mean did it loosen you up in some way or
0: yeah definitely I mean I could see that there was a lot of potential that it would be great to work with Ron to develop an architectural practice in a way from school. Scratch because it, it, there there wasn't a setup there and because I'd had so much experience in Canada I kind of knew how to do working drawings So your practical you know. skills were Yeah, I, very I knew up to all speed. of that and yes. and also I was able to just sort of take on board a completely different way of looking at design and of materials and you know learned a lot and but and had a very productive design partnership with sure. Ron for that lasted seven years so that's
1: a long time yeah. and so how did you progress from then on
0: well i i just decided after we'd done the tel aviv opera and the belga restaurants and dental work that i to work sort of in the public realm to work on housing to sort of take on board the social project of architecture you know bringing design to everybody and in a way working on the city sort of the city as a yeah. project that I I had to really find my own way again yeah. that wasn't really my yeah. sort of intentions and ambition was in a way different than Ron's it, like I sort of had to make a choice you know do I stay yes. with Ron and yeah Make make it work within this kind of sphere of furniture design, product design, architecture, or do I start a practice that's totally committed to the the project of architecture, of cities, and of of bringing and experimentation, of course, you know, uh, never let that go. But in a way, a, a slightly different context in that it means, I suppose, you know, working with less. You know, if you're working in housing and Really, really tough developers yes. as clients. It's a completely different thing than somebody who comes to you for an amazing piece of actually art that's or sculpture an, or even an interior.
1: That's a really interesting point because I found with many designers that often by this I mean good designers, when they're restricted, when there's a restricted amount of money creativity seems to get even better it seems to open something up so you you're now at this point leaving ron Howard. you start on your own how did that how did you manage to do that
0: it was time i, I don't know I, I just it's quite easy back then it was also just at the moment when we were shifting from hand drawing to yes. computers I, until I left Ron Art out associates. There, were, there were no computers everything there, so we were still drawing hour everything hour by hand yes. even, you know, complex curves, yeah. Um, yeah. complex geometry all of that, we were drawing it by hand and so there was a kind of shift so when I started up, sort of from the spare room in my house in, in Kilburn, I just wrote some letters to people that I'd become acquainted with in the previous seven years, who I I'd never actually, we'd never done any work for, or I'd never actually done work for when I was with Ron, but I met them and thought, well, these are potential clients. And so I wrote three letters, I think, and one of them became an offer to do quite a big interior design job in Germany. And so that was the Atoll Hotel in Helgoland in Germany.
1: And so you were the at that time hotel. solo?
0: I was solo, yeah. From your bedroom or whatever? <laughs> yeah, from this spare bedroom. Yeah, and I had a nine-month-old baby as oh. well. Oh, no, yeah, <laughs> that's tough. Well, I don't know. Like, I I had him. I'd worked with Ron through having my first child, and went back to work very soon, within three months of having Dylan. Went back to work with Ron, and I guess it was another six months before I said, "Okay, I need to start this thing." And and I had some little tiny bits of work that sort of just kept kept me going for the few months that it took to actually sort of secure this project in Germany. I mean, you can sort of. I suppose I had the advantage that I had a partner, you know, we had a, a so home, like we were totally broke, yeah, but yeah. We, we had a place to yeah. live and we could pay the rent and I could sort of get by for a few months without earning a, a decent salary. But it, it really, that only lasted for five months. It was sort of like starvation rations for <laughs> me, but but then it sort of kicked off open the up. new
1: And product. was your husband in a similar profession or completely? Yeah,
0: he, he's an architect and structural engineer.
1: And so it gradually evolved from there and you probably found yourself a space. Yes well I think we
0: worked I had five people working out of my living room in the house for between two and three years and then we realized well I just realized we had to move out we had to get a proper base and move to Britannia Row in Islington.
1: Okay well that sort of brings us up to yeah. your company, which has now expanded yeah. to where we're sitting now in this yeah. open plan office with lots of people. Looks yeah, like.
0: we're, we've been up to 35 yes. recently. We're a bit constrained by, by this space. We need to be nice to expand into more of this warehouse, but everybody's pretty much fixed in their, their leases in this building. So it's a great building. It's worked yeah. us well for the last 13 years. In our old space in Britannia Row, which was also a warehouse, we were on the ground floor and we got broken into so many times like all the computers stolen that was very twice in one year So when they were tough. stealing all the chip because yeah. they
1: were very expensive. They I were actually endlessly. breaking
0: in in the middle of the day and walking off with really? everything. Really? Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was quite... So I thought, okay, I have to move somewhere where I'm on the first floor at least. And, and this has been a good, good space and we've grown the practice. Lots of really great architects from all over the world, lots from Europe. And we're working all over the UK yeah. and now just starting to be invited to do projects overseas. I wanted
1: to touch on a little bit you were... AJ named you um, architect of the year woman architect of the year uh, as yeah. it, in 2013 and I read you were quoted as saying you didn't like being singled out as a woman architect um, but in fact from what I understand still the ratio between male and female is about 80% to 20 Um, still. And so it is quite unusual to be in a position that you're in. I mean, there are not many. So I'm as... And also you said said about your profession, you're either an architect 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, or you're not. (laughs) So I'm wondering how that sort of squares with the whole inevitability of eternity and, you know, what happens, I mean, in my own profession you know, I had many assistants who were absolutely fantastic and then that moment comes in the life where you know, they have a child and they go off and some just never come back because something happens, either, you know, that passion seems to be diverted, either they want to be with the child all the time or they just have a big change of heart and that is very difficult for a woman, I think, because you miss out on so many great people, they just kind of quietly fade away. Mm. How do you, um, how do you, being in the position that you're in and going through what you've just told me yourself how do you represent that sort of part of you know the inevitability of them
0: i think the the problem is that most and i think society in general still sees the issue of retaining women in the workplace as being a female issue like that's the problem that women have that they don't stay in the profession and it's it's a societal thing Mm. it's the, the problem is that women have this you know, inordinate sen- sense of guilt and the kind of burden of, well, you've got to be a fantastic mother and you've got to be a fantastic cook and you've got to be a fantastic housekeeper and you have to have, be a fantastic architect. And somehow we have to do all that while partners carry on as normal. you know When you have a child, at least in the UK and most places in the world, you know, men carry on working and suddenly women have to take on this whole other responsibility for someone's life. And and also there's this niggling sort of 1950s, 1960s illusion of the sort of ideal at-home mother, and that's the way women were supposed to be. That's sort of a, a given, which is a, a complete myth. Like the, the myth of the at-home mother who does nothing but cater to the needs of her children and her partner is something that really just happened since the industrial Revolution, You know, since actually women weren't burdened with having to do huge amounts of manual labor and gardening and cooking and canning. And mm. women worked very, very hard and often got their other children or parents or other family members to look after their children. You know, the idea that either parent should be at home all the time to look after their children, I think, is, is, some, is a kind of 20th century cultural myth. That actually, you know, we, we are struggling to shake it and if women and women in architecture and any profession felt that actually the responsibility and the time that it takes to raise a child is an equal responsibility between the mother and the father, you know, obviously from, you know, after the first year or even, well, the first year maybe two years, you don't have to feel guilty all the time. No. It's a shared cost and it's yes. a shared responsibility and, and if you sort of approach having children, having a family with that mentality in in a way like that shared... Burden is much easier to manage. The shared responsibility, and I think we are kind of stuck in this societal sort of expectation, this historic vision of the kind of ideal woman that prevents women from feeling confident and happy and secure about having, you know, sharing the responsibility of raising their child either with their partner or with nannies or childminders or you know nurseries that help you raise your child, so you can you can fulfill your potential as a creative person regardless of your gender.
1: I think the Scandinavians are way ahead in that respect in terms of the shared responsibility but also the other thing that's I think interesting is going to make a big change is the general in recent months the focus on men and their approach to women in the workplace and that's becoming a big issue so I think that this year is going to be a this year and next year will be a kind of crunch year for big change. I'd like to move on to some of your work now. I've watched, particularly because I was coming to meet you, I I watched a 40-minute documentary on the creation of Harlow Newtown, which is fascinating actually, um, because it started out with great intentions, you know, and then this was made in the 80s when the place had become really rather run down and everybody was moaning about it. And I know that you have been responsible for the Harlow New Hall B. What is interesting, it <coughs> touches with something you said at the very beginning, that your mother took you around to see all these buildings and there were these barns that you mentioned. And then I read that the old Essex barns, the black Essex barns, were part inspiration what you did with these domestic properties which Mm -hmm. work beautifully I think and what what I like about them so much is you know I live part of the time in Dorset in the the west country and there's a place there which you probably know about called Poundbury Poundbury it's like Disneyland really sort of and it's this faux sort of Georgian country aspects of it that are interesting in that it's got an organic feel rather than a regimented feel and there are no the signage is minimal and there are are no lines all of that that's very good but how had it have been given to a group of architects with vision, it could have been fantastic. And I thought what you had done in a small way in Harlow was just the kind of thing that would have worked so beautifully there because it picked up on a bit of history, of the area. If you move further out into Essex, those barns still exist and they're protected and they're, you know, generally painted black still because that's part of the deal with the local authorities but when you went to view the site for this project uh, you obviously must have traveled around Harlow to absorb so how did you how did you what did you think of Harlow because that was a post-war new town and mostly people from the east end of London Mm -hmm. when the place was bombed they were all transferred out
0: there. You know, mm-hmm. They
1: were, were, in fact, encouraging people to go there and finding them jobs and so forth. Yes,
0: I will, actually, in um, various developers and contractors I've worked with who grew up there in Harlow and were moved out of you know east london or somewhere and moved into the new town and for them they said it was heaven you know to grow up in the early years of of harlow new town in all with all this green and everybody jumped on their bikes and ran around in the in nature and everything was new and the schools were new and it was you know kind of fantastic and lots of young families so probably quite consistent demographic in a way all that energy and but I've heard and some of these people say that actually quite quickly it started not to work because the various sort of residential enclaves were very much enclaves you know they're each a kind of cul-de-sac on a very big scale and then separated by a green finger from the next cul-de-sac and then another green finger and another cul-de-sac And in a way, people began to feel quite isolated in these places. And some people took that seclusion as an opportunity to just sort of let everything go. You know, there wasn't a lot of maintenance. And then down the sort of central town, the town center, it was very sterile. Like the problem is always, in my view, with these places that they they create sort of monocultures. You know, there's a kind of experimental house typology let's do it everywhere. Let's build 500 of one house type, and then let's do something else and do another 500 of another house type. and Or the town centre, which is more or less a, a kind of monolithic apology and structure and material, and with a sort of inward-looking shopping centre now in the middle of it. I mean, although this was all well-intentioned, it was, in a way, very patriarchal, very... Arrogant, intellectually arrogant, I think, to sort of impose these experiments on sort of unsuspecting communities mm. and, like Frederick Gibbard, mm. not be willing to live in one of them yourself. Yes, like okay. I always design places. So, yeah. I would really like to live in them, sort yeah. of meet my own personal exactly. standard of a good place to be or live. And I think, historically, that's not the way a lot of architects thought.
1: Travelling around, as I do, in this country there is a kind of a vision about what a house should be like. I'm talking about general, you know, not grand, anyone grand with a lot of money, but the general population seem to accept very poor quality architecture. It's very, So you can go to Scotland and see a Barrett housing sort of system, red brick, everything off the shelf, depressing, could be the same in the West Country, could be the same in Wales. There's no sense of individuality or sense of giving it a place unlike say in um in holland where they think we want a lot of light we want nice big windows and use the spaces internally to be more flexible whereas here it's all about small rooms tiny windows you know curtains and that seems to be embedded in the psyche of you know, many people.
0: I think it's embedded in the psyche of the, the market, the sort of housing yeah. market and the house builders. They know that they can get away with producing that stuff yeah. because nobody is forcing them to do anything different unless you get a landowner like the Moen brothers and in Newhall take a position in terms of, you know, stewardship of the land, of commissioning a master plan, of ensuring and overseeing every single phase, making sure it's experimental, it's contemporary architects, learning lessons from the past, forming a really productive relationship with the local planning authority. So there's a kind of joint understanding and again a sort of shared responsibility to ensure that this development is exemplary and forward-thinking and does not fall into the the conventions of of typical house building the the problem is that there's so few developers who are able to buy large tracts of land and develop new housing that they are more or less given a clean slate, that they can, as long as they deliver something, you know they're, they're, and people generally don't know what they're missing, because they never see you know, really high quality contemporary homes put forward in these suburban or edge of town sites, it's always a standard product, and there's so much demand, they will always be purchased, because nobody has any choice, nothing else to buy.
1: And in the budget this week they announced 300,000 new houses over the next decade which is really small fry because yeah <laughs> that's needed
0: and it will never be it will never be solved those houses will never be delivered by the no. the, the market the housing market yeah. as it is now because they have actually are incentivized not to deliver those housing because as long as they keep demand really really high and supply low then prices won't drop. That's right. And, you know, they, they manage their sales rates to keep the demand high and keep the prices high. So there's a kind of... And land values are way too high. And there's no council house building. There's no state sort of sponsored and funded major house building program. So we're completely locked in to a completely unsustainable, broken... System yes. that suppresses good design, suppresses architectural quality, suppresses environmental quality, yeah. and until there's you know some kind of revolution, you know it's not going to get much better unless so you the, the really ground changes. No, I do see hope if um, government, both central government and local authorities sort of take back control of mm. of the land that they either own yeah. and can decide what to do with yeah. or you know planning consents how they give out planning consents how they allocate land they they have so much power and so much authority to d- determine and request you know high quality design teams contemporary high quality architecture offered land to housing cooperatives or building groups to self-build they they have so many tools hmm. at their fingertips that they could or through legislation and policy completely change the playing field they just need to do it they need to act
1: okay well look i want to move on to something that i think is very special and that is you're going to join a distinguished run of architects richard rogers Norman Foster. Thomas Heatherwick and others to build a Maggie Centre. I think your one is in Taunton. I've been to uh, the Richard Rogers Maggie Centre over at Charing Cross Hospital and spent an afternoon there and and understand the philosophy. And it's just a fantastic idea. I know it was Charles Jenks and his late wife Maggie that came up with this view that I think she said um, the loss of joy... Of living in the fear of dying you know that if you are diagnosed with cancer it's a horrific thing i mean it's frightening and and the consultants normally are like mechanics they're not particularly sympathetic and to create these spaces and to visit them you do get this wonderful sense of warmth it's such a and i they're rolling them out abroad now. I think in Spain there is yes, there's, there's a few. Yes. That are, that are so uh, how are you? What's your general view about how you think you might approach it?
0: Well, my approach is in a way very much like I think most architects. When you're asked to design a house, you know, a home for somebody, a sort of bespoke house, because all of the Maggies are more or less at the scale of a house. They're around 300 square metres, 300, yeah, big houses, 300, 400 square metres. And when you think of the Maggie centres as being like a very beautiful house that people visit and spend time in and are kind of welcomed and um, comforted in a similar way to the way people use their home or offer their home to their friends and family, it, it's a very similar, in a way, problem I suppose, that you you have the opportunity to design something that's very bespoke that is everyday experience of, of spaces of materials, of light it happens at a very intimate scale and so it, it's an amazing opportunity to have a commission like that, working for an institution such as Maggie's because they understand that, that actually architecture you know wonderful spaces with fantastic light and beautiful materials with a deep connections to landscape can actually make you feel better. You know, that architecture has a physical, physiological, emotional, psychological impact on people. They understand that and they believe it and they support it. And yes, it's, it's a really amazing sort of confluence, I suppose, of, of art landscape architecture and and a sort of programme of healing. Like even if it's not, you know, going to necessarily cure somebody, no. it has a healing effect.
1: I mean if only that idea, which is on a small scale, could be amplified on a big scale, that when we went to a hospital one had that sort of experience. I know that's pie in the sky, but you have said it yourself, you know, it's the it's uh, it comes from someone that understands what architecture and a space around the building can do the gardens the path the welcome the fact that there's no they get rid of signage so you've got to have a chance encounter with someone even if it's just say, where is the loo? you know and it creates this lovely sense of community um well i look forward to to seeing that we're coming to the end now so uh, i just want to ask you do you still Obviously, you're all, as we all are these days, you know, sort of digital. But do you start your ideas with pen and back of an envelope?
0: Yes, yeah, I do. <laughs> I um, I don't often drop this pen, yeah. this particular type of pen that I yes. use. That's um, really good because it doesn't smear. You know, the minute you draw with it, it doesn't uh, rub off. Okay. Now, I, I very much believe that there's a really important connection between you know yeah. the activities of your brain and the way ideas sort of flow from your brain and down your arm and out the end of your pen <laughs> you know that that there are things that happen in a way that are about the physical act of drawing in a way your your hand edits out a lot of stuff that you if you were sort of telling somebody well I want you to look at this yeah. and look at that and look yeah. at the other thing when you just have to in a way distill those ideas with a quick sketch it's amazing how strong those sketches can be
1: and you're not really guiding anything it just
0: no so sometimes i say that ideas came out the end of my pen yeah. Like i don't know how they yeah, they, yeah. they got there but yeah. they came out and there's something really great about that that i think is about instinct it is about you know life experience yeah it's about the subconscious. You know, there's so many complex things that happen in your mind, and when it's in a sort of creative mode, you can surprise yourself very quickly. And I I think that's one of the great things about sketching and designing is that you can surprise yourself an idea that you you come across something or, in a way, invent or imagine something you've never seen before, and that doesn't remind you of anything that that's a really great moment yeah it's kind of you know you're discovering it's those wonderful things.
1: sort of accidents that happen yeah. and you don't know how they happen.
0: You, you don't really know how they happen but you know sometimes it takes years of looking back and thinking like oh you know that, oh, is, that yeah. maybe came from this yeah. this um, influence i had at some point in my life but i think that that also, the principle of authorship and knowing that the the work comes from you know a specific person of a from a specific place in a specific time, these are in a way easier for people to relate to than ideas that come out of, sort of really long and convoluted processes yeah. where you can't really find the source. Yeah. Everybody is always interested in understanding the source of. Of ideas and creativity because that is part of the story that that design tells.
1: Well, now you've designed houses, schools, art centres, university campuses. Uh, you've master planned. Uh, you haven't, I mean, I'm interested in your view on well, what I call statement buildings, i.e., the kind of buildings that crop up in the centre of a city, particularly London, that are, by the month, it seems, changing the the scape is that something you'd like to eventually do be something on that because a lot of work seems to be very much wedded in more of a a social sympathetic view to what architecture is about so art centers yeah a context yes the
0: kind the cultural context in which in which i'm working i think you know every project in a way generates a different kind of response and you have a certain as as an architect when you're presented with a brief I think a lot of it is about understanding and analysing the situation to to see if it's really necessary to make a, a statement per se, like a really obvious statement of <laughs> of of form or of shape or and a lot of and I think historically there was a there's there was a kind of pressure, there was a lot of egocentric, um self expressive architecture happening that became in a way too predictable. And to, um, you know, the sort of one-liner, you know, everybody, you know, when when a a statement building is so obvious that you can sort of, you know, the shape or something is so particular that you can give it some kind of acronym. And then it kind of demeans the whole act of, of making that thing. It's a kind of trap, I think, that a lot of hmm. architects fall into. And in a way, I think it's much more interesting if to design in a way that your audience or the constituents for which you're designing can discover that project over time and that it you know that your building or your architecture actually reveals itself over days or months or years and it, and it is part of a sort of longer storytelling process that it's not a one-liner that you just look at it and you know stick it in that category yeah. and it doesn't require that kind of um, effort to discover, you know, why is it interesting? Something that can look mm-hmm. relatively uninteresting from a distance. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's you know can be more about the materiality, the the kind of subtleties of differences and changes of, of materials, of um, sort of the the human contact with yeah. the architecture, yeah. and it, the the kind of Architecture that's just about visual impact, that's not really humane, in my view. We, we, need, we need to sort of let go of that sort of addiction to really strong visual statements and cater more towards the experience, the actual sensory and intellectual and physical experience of, of our... Okay. I
1: have a last question for you. I always ask this question. If you could go back and give advice to your younger self wanting to get into this profession, what would you say? What advice would you give? Because I'm sure that there are many budding, you know, Alison Brooks is out there thinking, well, I'd love to do that.
0: I suppose I wish I'd had more confidence, I think, as a as a young person. I, I was kind of raised, obviously, in 1960s, 70s, a pretty traditionally authoritarian male dominant male-dominated um, society all of my professors were men all of um, yeah all of my employers were men and and I think growing up in the sort of second half of the 20th century there was a sense that men tend to have the knowledge and have the authority and women you know tend to sit back listen mm-hmm. you know, be good listeners and kind of practically surreptitiously do what we are good at without shouting about it very much and without um, putting ourselves forward. And, and I think also a little bit my sort of Protestant, Calvinist, ancestry, Presbyterian, European background, you know, that uh, kind of cultural context in which I grew up was sort of like the opposite of self-promotion. You yes. know, you know yes. being... The old fashioned word is boasting, but like self promoting or yeah. being overtly it's sort of being overly self confident was practically a sin you know yes, that, yes, that yes. to to call attention to yourself in any way and I think that those two things the sort of culture of the time in terms of patriarchy and and then this kind of protestant guilt thing sort of I'm sure, made me much, you know, much less confident and, and sure of myself, in terms of, you know, going putting myself forward, pitching for things, and back then also there weren't, weren't the tools for dissemination the no. way there is now, you yeah. know, social media, Twitter, and websites, and all of that stuff. When I started my practice, none of that existed, so you had to kind of live by your wits, and I really gained all of my work all of my projects through competitions and so i felt that if the work was good enough you know if you could excel at design then that would stand for itself and that would win you the next project but i, I do think that was you know naive in retrospect that you can't just rely on the design also architecture is very slow it takes you know yeah. 7 years to finish a project yes. from start to finish so you have to do a lot of other kinds of work now I don't really want to call it networking but I think in a way it, architects are educated to be you know designers who spend millions of hours sitting at their computer at their drawing table drawing but actually you have to talk you have to write you have to participate in both the arts community the architectural community and, and you know just society as a whole so, so I think, in a way, this being more visible and being more confident about my own abilities is something that I, I wish I'd done earlier in my career.
1: Well, you, your career certainly has blossomed. <laughs> um, Alison Brooks, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. It's pleasure.